Shane Amara, Professor of Neuroscience at Trinity College Dublin and author of the recently published and fascinating book, Talking Heads, the New Science of How Conversation Shapes Our World. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for the invite, Connor. I appreciate it. Where are you from, Shane? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Galway uh, on the west coast of Ireland. And uh, as soon as it was possible to flee the rain, I fled it. And I've been living in Dublin most of my life uh, since. Uh, I went to college in Galway originally, and then I did a PhD in Oxford and then uh, came back to Dublin in the early 90s, mid 90s. And uh, I've been here ever since. How would you describe your childhood? Uh, oh, gosh, it was a happy childhood. Uh, we moved around a bit uh, when I was a kid and then we settled in Galway when I was about seven or eight. And uh, yeah, I, I, I would say I had a, a standard <laughs> Irish upbringing, a family of four. Uh, my parents are thankfully still alive. Uh, and yeah, I would say I had a, a happy childhood. My parents weren't very directive in terms of telling me what they wanted me to do as a career. It was more kind of up to me to choose uh, the direction that I went and uh, I found a direction, which is good. How did you find neuroscience? I, by reading, actually. Um, the story is is very, very simple. I was a slightly nerdy teenager in certain respects. And uh, my folks went on a trip to the US, I think, uh, for a holiday. Um, and uh, my dad asked me what he would bring me back as a present. And uh, I said, bring me back some books and some newspapers, because, um, you know, New, or the US, New York, all of these places were kind of amazing alien places when you're a kid in the 1980s or the 1970s. And uh, uh, one of the books he brought me back was a book by the astronomer Carl Sagan uh, called Broca's Brain, uh, which was a book of essays. Um, and uh, it was a really amazing thing for me to read. It kind of blew my mind, really because uh, he, he describes in that book uh, how we can understand the language centers in the brain um, by studying very carefully selected patients. And it was kind of just this amazing revelation to me that, wow, you can actually find stuff out. <laughs> you can ask questions uh, and research will give you answers. And uh, that's how really I, I got my initial interest in, in uh, neuroscience. Um, a central theme in Talking Heads, the concept of memory and how collective memory shapes our shared experience. Early in the book, we're introduced to Henry Molaison. Who was Henry and what happened to him? Yeah, so Henry uh, is one of these names um, that if you do a course in psychology or if you do a course in neuroscience uh, and probably in neurology or medicine more generally, you, you will come across. He... he uh, uh, came from a, a, on his mother's side, an Irish-American family, um, and on his father's side, I think a Canadian family, but he grew up in the US. Um, and uh, he may or may not have had an accident. And this this speaks to kind of one of the themes of, of memory that lots of the time, we have to be honest, we just don't know precisely what happened and our records aren't very good. Uh, so the story goes that he may and or may not have had an accident. He may have fallen off a bicycle or he may have been hit by a bicycle uh, or he may not have been at all. We, we, we don't really know. The records are very poor. Um, and uh, he may have suffered a head injury and he had x-rays which indicated there was nothing wrong. Uh, but the x-rays of, of the time wouldn't have been especially uh, good. Um, but he, in his late teens, 
he started to suffer epileptic fits and these were really profound they were frequent uh they were very severe <clears throat> and very disabling uh and i think at his peak he may have been having up to something like 100 fits per day um and uh, the drug treatments that were available at the time were really very very poor um they they, they uh, uh weren't controlling his his fitting at all and uh, he was brought to uh, to see various specialists and the electrical activity was recorded in his brain and it looked like from the recordings that uh, he had uh, damage to um, a part of the brain known as the hippocampal formation uh, mm. which is uh, about this length uh, from the top of the ear to the temple you have one on both sides it's about the size maybe of your middle finger maybe mm. a little bit bigger than that and uh uh, the decision was taken when he was in his uh, 20s and he participated in the decision, of course, he was 24, I think, at the time, uh, to remove this piece of brain tissue on both sides of the brain. Um, and uh, the thinking at the time was that this was not going to have much of an effect, that uh, it looked like from the uh, studies that were available that the hippocampus didn't really do much. It was involved in smell. And was involved in one or two other things, but really didn't have a, a, a major role. It was kind of almost a silent organ. Um, now, we have to attribute that to the fact that we just didn't know very much. Mm. Uh, and Henry had it removed and his epileptic fits were resolved uh, almost immediately. A really staggering uh, outcome uh, in terms of apparent uh, improvement in his quality of life. Mm. Uh, but, and here's the but. Over mm. the weeks and months after the operation, uh, his fitting had had gone away or almost entirely gone away, uh, but his memory was devastated. Uh, like he he became the most pure and profound case of of amnesia ever described in the literature. So that that's Henry's kind of origin story. And over the next fifty years of his life, that condition never resolved. Uh, he remained profoundly amnesic for the whole of his life. Uh, ended up living in in a protected environment he, he, as he would have had to have done mm. and uh, was aware that he had a memory deficit so it's not like losing your memory makes you lose insight mm. yeah it's it's he was um somebody that was studied essentially yeah um, he, he, he most of his natural life uh, th right throughout his life he was a very he was very happy to do this. Mm. Uh, now, I never met him, but I've, I've met many people who have. And he was a very genial, affable guy. He liked uh, working with neuropsychologists and others. It, I guess in some respects, it filled up his day a bit. Um, he got to meet new people all the time, people he would never remember on the next occasion mm. that he would meet them. And uh, he, the nature of his deficit was probed in all sorts of ways. And then when uh, MRI imaging came along in the, in the, the 90s and in the early 2000s, uh, his brain was imaged and it confirmed indeed the, the surgical notes that he did have uh, total loss of the, the hippocampal formation, more or less on, on both sides of his brain. There was a vestigial bit mm. uh, which didn't seem to work left on one side. And uh, he died in 2007 and he bequeathed his brain to science. Uh, so it has been intensely studied. Uh, mm. You can go online and, and study sections of it if you want. Now, that, that surgery will never be repeated um, mm. and has never been repeated. Uh, if surgeons have to remove the hippocampus for uh, uh, re relief of epilepsy, what they will typically do now is, is 
uh, do what are called depth recordings. So they will record activity within the hippocampus long prior to surgery. And they will try and take out the smallest, most minimal bit, and they will only do it on one side. Uh, and that surgery, uh, that kind of restricted surgery does actually seem to be very, very effective. Um, and the, the obvious next question is, so if the memory centers are in the brain are impacted by amnesia or dementia, the consequences are, are so significant and the consequences of that kind of amnesia in a person's life are, are extraordinary. Um, a key function of our memories is to intimately support social communication. What role does memory play in communication? Um, memory is, so this is where that I guess the story starts to become complicated. It's, it's easy to, to focus on memory and say, Henry can't remember what we did yesterday. He can't remember uh, the uh, piece of prose we got him to read this morning or mm. that kind of thing. And it's easy to think about memory in that kind of restricted kind of way. But that's a mistake because the larger story is that if you think about Henry in terms of his life or you think about somebody who has dementia. Mm. That becomes a life in the care of others um, because uh, you end up needing to rely on help from other people, support from other people, because you can't remember what it is that you need to do during the course of your day. And more than that, you're not able to update uh, your recollections of what has happened. Mm. So, you know, your spouse might tell you, don't forget to do X today. Don't forget to do Y. And as she does. Or, or she does or whatever. And you don't do it. Uh, and you're not doing it because of malign intentions. You're doing it because uh, we have a memory system that's updated by conversation. And in this case, it's not possible to update it by conversation. Mm. Uh, so you, you end up with this really profound deficit in, in, in interacting with others uh, because of, of uh, the loss of memory. So memory and conversation come together really intimately in that kind of way. We shouldn't think of memory and our ability to use languages as separate things, although they happen in different bits of the brain, mm. but those bits happen to interact. Um, there's a piece um, in one of the chapters where you talk about investigative interviewing and the importance of building rapport um, in, in life and in, in general. Can you expand on that, the rapport building piece? Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm sure you uh, and your listeners and uh, no more than myself and others have watched any number of, of television and movie programs where we've seen people who apparently know things being in, interrogated in some way, shape or form. And it's all this, you know, battens, it's the third degree, it's pulling out fingernails, it's mm. doing all sorts of terrible things, Stasi, to Tor yeah. torture, in other words. Mm. Um, and the from a, a bunch of different directions, from clinical psychology, uh, working with patients, from uh, business and interacting in interview situations, and also from the kind of forensic psychology of witness interviewing and source interviewing. It's become very, very clear that if you want to get good information from people, what you have to do is engage in what's called rapport with that person. So that is, you must treat them with respect. Uh, you must use their name. You must let them tell their own story. You mustn't interrupt. Um, you must ask very specific questions in a, in a particular way, having regard to the fact that the person might be under stress. It might be the first time they've ever spoken with a, a police officer or whatever. Um, and 
that's treating a conversation as an information gathering exercise. It's not treating it as a confession extraction exercise. It's really easy to get confessions. Uh, just break out the electrodes and the car battery and uh, people will confess to anything. Mm. But you will not get the truth that way. Um, and what you want to do is get what people can tell you in a way that is not contaminated by the stress that you bring to the situation, the fears that you bring out in the person. Uh, you let them tell their story. And that means actually having a conversation where, you know, we're basically decent to each other. <laughs> you make a connection. Well, you 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 demonstrate patience as well, um, and you listen carefully and absolutely and active listening. And you absorb. active listening is another way of of of, of thinking about it. Uh, and it turns out wonderfully, you know, that these skills can be taught uh, in an apprentice-like fashion. There's uh, lots and lots of evidence now to suggest that when you tape people doing interviews with others. Um, and you go back through the tapes and you show them the mistakes, you show them how to correct what they're doing, all of those kinds of things that people get much better at this. So, mm. you know, you can think of it as in a way as kind of like the uh, your doctor having a good bedside manner um, or, you know, we, we you very regularly will meet people who you enjoy a conversation with because, you you know, they're hearing you. Um, and the, the, there's an old line which I think goes back to Cicero or somebody uh, about you having uh uh, one mouth and two ears, so you should listen uh, twice as much as you speak. Uh, yeah. And an investigator I know uh, in the US, when he's training, that what he emphasizes: just let people speak. Yeah, no, no, it's it's great in 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 sales and in in life in general and anything that you're doing. The ability to listen is is, is essential. Um, mind blanking versus mind wandering. What's mind blanking? What's mind wandering? Yeah, so mind blanking um, is uh, a really interesting phenomenon. Um, so if you think about Henry for a moment, uh, or think about somebody who's got, and there are a, a couple of patients uh, now on the record who've got hippocampal damage caused by viral infections. Um, what can happen in those patients? If you, if you ask them to tell you what's going on in their minds, you know, just every time a, a bell rings or a buzzer goes off or a timer goes, you ask them, what, what are you thinking about? Mm. Um, well, they might be thinking about what's going on around them. Um, you know, who's in front of them, the cup of coffee they've got in their hand. Um, they might be uh, actually engaged in mind wandering. Not they're physically present, but they're not mentally present. They're going off on a, a wonderful journey of the mind. Or there might be nothing at all. Um, and there are uh, quite a few types of patients for, who will complain to you that nothing comes to mind. You know, they're conscious of the fact that they're blank uh, and they're awaiting a stimulus, something from the environment to get them going. Um, mind wandering, I think, is is something that uh, is really undervalued uh, in society. I, I think we should spend a lot more time zoning out from the present moment, not pretending to be always productive, always banging at the keyboard. Mm. Um, what it is, is, is a, 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 when if you give people a mobile phone uh, app that pings them multiple times during the day and all they have to do is report, what are you doing? Are you thinking about what you're doing at the moment or are you elsewhere? Um, and uh, you might ask them to, to rate the emotion that they're feeling or that kind of thing. But there are lots of ways of doing studies like this. But the, the number we come back to time and time again 
is that we spend about a third, maybe even 40% of the day actually engaged in thinking about something other than where we are and what we're doing. We're off on this wonderful journey of the mind. Now, why is that interesting? Well, first of all, it's interesting because we do so much of it. Um, but when you ask what's going on when we're mind wandering mm. uh, and you get people to report what they're thinking about, well, actually, they're doing something really interesting. They're thinking about the future, mm. thinking about their social relations. They're thinking about things that they have to do. They're, they're thinking about kind of the big picture of their lives. Um, and in the case of knowledge workers, uh, what they're also doing is kind of focusing on creative problem solving. Um, you know, so that they've got this kind of uh, zoning out from the problem, trying to see the forest and then zoning back in and, and looking at the individual trees when you're. So these moments when you're stepping back from something uh, actually give you a chance to think about where you are in relation to uh, your world, your social world in particular. You know, we humans are, are intensely social. When you wake up in the morning, uh, as, as, as one neuroscientist puts it, uh, unless you're a mathematician, you know, you're, you're not thinking about triangles and heart circles. You're thinking about uh, what's to happen today. Who am I going to be seeing? Uh, who's making the, the breakfast for the kids? Who's, you know, all of the, the kind of stuff that we need to power through the day. Mm. And that's what we do when we mind wander. And mind wandering is really good for uh, problem solving uh, because you're not zoned in on what you're focused on at the moment what you're doing is allowing other thoughts to percolate through your consciousness that uh, otherwise wouldn't get there so time on task is good but time off task is good as well yeah and we maybe we shouldn't make the assumption that when somebody is mind wandering they're doing nothing productive like you said oh, yeah probably what they're doing is something creative and they may may solve a problem in the universe or you know who knows what they'll come up with right yeah, and the, the 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 fun thing is, of course, we all got into trouble for mind wandering when we were oh, in yeah. school. You know, I can recall being shouted at for looking out the window. I've I've no idea what I was thinking about, but <laughs> I can certainly recall getting into trouble for doing that. But here's the cool thing: hmm. if you pop people in a brain scanner and you get them to solve very specific tasks, so they're maybe looking at a paragraph of text and they have to click a button every time they see the letter E. So that's really task focused. Um, or you just let them close their eyes and think of nothing. Um, what you see is when they're task focused, a, a small network of brain areas come on. Hmm. Um, and it, it's it's really oriented towards counting down all of those E's. But when you close your eyes and you're doing nothing, you get this sudden burst of activity all over the brain. Um, uh, it, 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 there's lots of different names for this. But the one that I like the best is, is the default mode network. And it's called the default mode because we do it so much. Um, so I, I think neuroscience kind of comes back and says, actually, mind wandering is a good thing. You do an awful lot of it. And when you're sitting there, apparently doing nothing, you're quiescent behaviorally. Your brain is working like mad on something. And what's also what's kind of funny about the book is that in one section, you extol the virtues of gossip. Right. And it's yes. wonderful to, to hear a neuroscientist and a professor of neuroscience uh, telling us to basically to gossip more, right? Why is gossip um, so important and of actual value? Yeah, so, so think about gossip for a moment. If you're living in a, in a small group of five people or whatever, who gossips about who? Nobody. Everybody knows everything there is to know about everybody. 
You know, it it would be really weird if a mother gossiped to her daughter about the husband. Uh, that would be, you know, a, a, a hint that there's maybe <laughs> something gone wrong in, in the relationship. Mm. Everything's transparent. But we live in complex societies where there's lots going on all the time and where we need cues from the world around us to tell us who's trustworthy, who's not, who can get stuff done, who will tell you they'll get stuff done, but actually doesn't do it, who uh, is going to stab you in the back, who's not. All that kind of thing. Um, that stuff isn't written down. Um, mm. You know, if you join a new organization, you'll get the handbook telling you of all the about all the stuff and the formal roles and all the rest of it that people have. If, you know, if you join a, a sports club, will it really be the subscription secretary who'll take care of things? Or do you actually discover there's somebody else who does the job that the subsec is supposed to be doing? Um, how do you find this out? You find it out by gossiping. Mm. We exchange information all the time and gossip has, you know, so that's kind of a, a first order way of looking at gossip. But there's another way of looking at gossip, which I think is actually really says something about the way humans are built. And this is that we can use the fear of gossip to police our own behavior um, because we're so concerned about what other people think and say about us. Hmm. Um, we, what we want to do is avoid social sanction. We want to avoid a situation where people say we're not trustworthy so we actually use the fear of people speaking ill of us uh, to channel our own behavior now that might be a good thing might be a bad thing but the point is that we have the ability uh, to do that fire ants don't have that chimpanzees don't have it tigers don't have it we humans seem to have this unique capacity to worry about what other people might be worrying about us <laughs> Mm. Uh, and then use that to guide our own behavior. So we don't do thing, and we don't do X, we don't do Y, whatever it happens to be. Yeah, I, I was thinking about, I was reading it, that, that gossip is something that will happen in an information vacuum and in a closed system, where you say, for example, you're in an organization or a company, you're working on a team, and it's a hierarchical structure, and you're not being told anything, and you know you're not being told anything. There is probably a tendency in that scenario to engage and indulge in... in, in oh, yeah. You'll wander about the corridors and you'll try and find who yeah. tell you what. Uh, and, y y you know, if you're smart about it, you don't send it in a text message or no. you don't uh, you don't put it in a, in a WhatsApp or whatever. Uh, what you do is you have a face-to-face -face with somebody. And one of the good reasons for doing that is that you can read things from the other person's behaviour, from their silences, from the, the emphases they give when they're speaking... Um, information that isn't possible to get from just a purely textual source. Yeah, very, very interesting. Um, fifty-five percent of people believe that memory can be enhanced by hypnosis. Yet there is no empirical foundation for that belief. Okay, so hypnotherapy is an entire industry. From a neuroscience perspective, can you see any merit, maybe even in terms of a placebo behind? hypnotherapy what, what's your perspective there um so hypnot you see I, th I think the problem we've got with hypnosis and hypnotherapy generally is that again we what we have are these kind of stage illusions uh of people's uh people being taken over and and we trust in what we see even though yeah. what we're seeing is probably a setup um you know uh, we, we want to believe that somehow mind control can be exerted by me <laughs> swinging a watch in front of your eyes 
and actually that's not the reality of kind of of hypnosis uh so first of all i think uh Lots of people aren't susceptible to being hypnotized. Uh, it's only only a minority of people. And when you look in depth at what's going on in those people, what what you're doing is inducing a kind of a, a, a slightly, um, I was going to say mindful state, but that's really not the quite the right word. Uh, it, it's a state of intense relaxation uh, where the, the, the person is engaged or has a single sensory focus, which is the words uh, of the person that they're listening to. And uh, a skilled hypnotist or a skilled hypnotherapist can induce a state of, of great relaxation in a person very, very well. Uh, you know, like the, the, there are lots of methods for doing this. You can do it in a self-paced way through meditation. Uh, there's uh, this, the so-called non-sleep uh, deep relaxation methods there are lots and lots of ways of inducing these but what you're getting is a state where mind wandering is reduced mm -hmm. uh, reduced very very dramatically uh, you have a single sensory channel that you're you're paying attention to which is the voice of the person because you're lying down your eyes are closed so you're not getting any visual input the the uh, sensory input from what you're lying on kind of disappears after a while because the body knows that it's there so it, or the brain rather knows it's there so it, it subtracts that input from you um, and uh, people, I think certain people can find out of great uh, benefit to them in, in terms of de-stressing and those kinds of things. I think the problem, and I'm not saying this about hypnosis specifically, is how you get from inducing those kinds of states to enduring change in a person's life. And that's a hard problem. Um, and I, I I, don't want to pretend I can offer any easy solutions to it. This is something that people working in uh, uh, the various psychotherapies, cognitive behavior therapy and other things have, have been puzzling away at. Mm. Uh, enduring behavioral change is, is, is really, really hard. And, you know, you might you might find from hypnosis that when you're in a high stress situation, if you remember to go through the sequence that you, you've been taught that this helps calm down your breathing mm. calm and gives you a focus away from whatever it is that, that that's causing your anxiety so you know some people might find that of, of great benefit um but other people might not respond very well to it you know the if the non-responders <laughs> is a problem in medicine uh generally so some people respond very well to a therapy and other people don't and figuring out the reason why is an issue and do you, have we studied, I mean, I presume we have studied how relaxation releases um, certain good chemicals, serotonin, dopamine. So so extreme relaxation would be very, very good for the brain, right, in releasing those kind of chemicals? Would well, I, I think that, be, you know, it depends on the level of analysis that you want to look mm. at. Um, what you're doing, I think, you know, if you, if you think about it at the level of the, the kind of brain systems, you're... Uh, you're slowing your rate of breathing down. That's a really good thing to do. Mm. That in turn, your breathing and heart rate are both coupled. So mm. if you're slowing your breathing rate down, your heart rate is going to drop. That's mm. in turn is going to bring your blood pressure down. The feedback you're getting from the periphery then starts to, to drop. So the pounding that you might have in your ears because your blood pressure is high and your, your heart is going like crazy, mm. uh, all of that starts to disappear. And instead of kind of having the self-augmenting cycle where uh, the person is feeling worse and worse, what you're doing is kind of intervening and slowing everything down so that the person starts to feel better. And in, in that kind of state, uh, 
you then can have positive change. It's 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 just it's very difficult when the person is in a, in the middle of a full blown panic attack, for example, or a, mm. a stress or a, 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 an anxiety attack or whatever it is. Uh, teaching them to to feel the feedback from their own body, uh, and then to learn to control it through breathing, through decreasing the focus on the outside world, focusing on a on a single stimulus. All of those things, I think, are pretty good things to be able to do. Good. Um, and noted. Uh, you reference Hol- Holocaust survivor Ellie Wiesel. Yes. At one stage in the book, who said, "Memory without memory, there is no culture, society, civilization, or future. How, how does memory shape culture? Yeah, so that, that could really, I think the Ellie Wiesel quote is, is you know, he stood as a, a witness to the Holocaust, having survived uh, a, uh, the Holocaust, um, and uh, it kind of that that quote has always really resonated with me in a way because he, if you live in a world where there is no past, all you've got is the present. <laughs> you, you know, you you've got nothing that you can possibly learn from, mm. and there's nothing you can travel forward in the future. Uh, because one of the kind of key points that I want to get across in the book is that we think of memory as backward facing. It's there to help us recall things, but actually it's not. We know from studying patients uh, like HM and many or Henry and, and the many others that actually uh, having amnesia blunts your ability to imagine the future uh, because you can't draw on this well that you have of learning uh, to imagine alternative futures. So. Uh, the thinking of people who have amnesia is very present oriented. It's very bound to the stimulus that's in front of them at the moment. And what I, I do is kind of ask the question, uh, imagine a society comprised of Henry's. Uh, mm. That society has no capacity to learn. Uh, nobody is going to remember what happened 10 minutes ago. Um, <laughs> there's only a continual present. And if all you've got is a continual present, well, then you've got no future. Um, by definition, all you have is is, is the present moment. Um, nostalgia. What is it? What's happening? And when we look back at a time in our in our lives with nostalgia, um, it's it's a fond, essentially a fond memory of, of events and experiences. What's going on with nostalgia? Yeah. So nostalgia, I think, is is uh, an underexplored interaction between emotion and memory. Um, and, uh, you know, it, 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 to put it at its kind of most abstract, it, it's a state where you're recalling memories that have emotions attached to them. Mm. And these emotions can be sad. They can be one of loss or they can be happy. You know, they, they, they can have lots of things attached to them. And uh, uh, what we see uh, when we... Uh, survey people across the lifespan as as people get older their memories become uh kind of retrospective in some respects they, they they think about their past life they think about where they are in relation to that timeline um but they also engage in in what's called rosy retrospection uh and this i think is a, a positive thing to look forward to when you get older you just basically stop recalling the bad stuff um because who wants to go to their grave <laughs> thinking about all the bad stuff that's happened in your life mm. um, and people tend 
to start to think more about the positive stuff from their past. So hence, hence the point that you've made, that nostalgia is a, 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 a positively inflected uh, emotion, or sorry, a emotional memory. Um, I do think, though, that there's a, a dark side to nostalgia um, that uh, in the hands of especially particular political leaders, what they're very, very good at doing is, is talking about a lost, wonderful time. And what they're doing is evoking a time maybe 30, 40, 50 years ago when everything was great. Uh, of course, it wasn't great. You know, we didn't have really good dental care. <laughs> we didn't have vaccines. Mm. You know, there was a whole lot of stuff about that world. We didn't have good insulation in our homes. Uh, uh, you know, <laughs> when you think about it, there's any number of things you can think about. But what they're, they're very good at doing is, is invoking a particular time when they were in charge, uh, when it was good. And they speak about the past in restorative terms. They're going to bring the past into the present. Um, and I, I draw the contrast in the book between the language of Ronald Reagan and the language of uh, uh, Donald Trump. Trump uses the phrase, make America great again. In other words, it was great. My job is to make it great for you again. Whereas Reagan, uh, when you read any of his speeches about America, uh, actually speaks in very, very different terms. It's not restoration. Uh, it's actually America is this wonderful shining city on a hill. It, there's this amazing future that we're all going to together. And there's, I think, a really nice contrast between the, the language that they both use. Mm. Now, I'm not making a judgment on whether you agree or disagree with them politically here. That, mm. That's a different day's discussion. But I'm, what I'm focusing on is, on is this idea that the language that politicians use can be future oriented or it can be restorative. Um, the problem is we're only going into the future. <laughs> you, can't think, you can't go back to the past. The past is done. Um, you know, we're only in the present moment and we're and we're moving forwards. So language that's used by politicians that's very future oriented is actually very, very powerful. And you, you see this when you look at uh, speeches by politicians all around the world, ones that are very, very good at evoking uh, the future, saying that we will get through the difficulty of the present um, and that a better future awaits us, tend to be remarkably effective. Um, so Churchill, of course, was a master of this during the Second World War. Uh, we will not give up. The world will get better. We will defeat the evil of the Nazis. De Gaulle did this brilliantly for the French, um, dispersed all over the world, saying that France will not give up. We will restore France uh, and we will make a better future for ourselves. And uh, you can go through speech after speech. Kennedy, of course, was an absolute master of this. Uh, the US is going to put a man on the moon. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. The future will be wonderful, which is why he's remembered in, in fond terms. Um, and uh, anyway, my general point is that good pals are very good at mastering this mental timeline and ones that are future and oriented, that are positive about that future, who have a good story to tell, tend to be remarkably effective in how they appeal to the broad mass of people. I got a sense when I was reading that section that <clears throat> nostalgia had been weaponized, either consciously or unconsciously, by one or two particular politicians. Yeah, um, I, I think that that is true too. You you can uh, weaponize nostalgia in a variety of different ways. 
Uh, you can talk about how you're going to protect what you have. Uh, you can treat society and, and life as a zero-sum game where um, there's a fixed pie and it's going to be divided in, in uh, a particular uh, kind of way. Mm. Uh, or you can think about life as, as uh, you know, a frontier that moves up, uh, moves on and, and uh, things will get better. Um, and uh, I, I guess, uh, you know, I, I don't have data to speak to this, um, but I guess that kind of language appeals consistently to one segment of the population. I, I'm not certain that it, it appeals to everybody. Um, my my sense is that you know if you're in your twenties and you're thinking about you know the next sixty years of your life, trying to restore something from sixty years ago is not terribly attractive to you. But mm. if you're in your sixties or seventies and you want to bring back how great you felt as a teenager, maybe that way of speaking is is uh, is, is a very good way of of harnessing votes from a a, a particular uh, part of the the. Uh, the, the the political spectrum but again mm. you know uh thinking about people who are older um they have children they have grandchildren they want to leave a better world you know so there, there are lots of different ways of, of thinking about how you you can use language and I, I, you can put language to use in this kind of restorative we'll bring the past into the present or you can think about it as we're in the present and the future before us is golden and it's very important to to note and to to remember that when we do look into the past, like you state you stated, we do have those nostalgia glasses on us. Yeah, and we, we're absolutely. not remembering. You know, nineteen eighties Ireland. I remember nineteen eighties Ireland. Like, <laughs> so do I. <laughs> I mean, uh, that was sorry grim. for laughing, but it was a terrible place. <laughs> it was grim, you know. It was really um, grim. <laughs> um. Okay, so I think that's why we haven't had a politics of nostalgia in this country. Yeah. You know, we, we've got a young population. Uh, the average age is, uh, I guess, in the mid 30s of the, of the population as a, as a whole. And uh, looking back on those uh, smoggy, <laughs> grey times in the lettuce East, sandwiches, are, <laughs> like the, the food quality. I mean, every we could talk about it ad infinitum. Right? Yeah. Uh, what type of coffee do you want? A mug or a cup? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Okay, so one of the pieces in the book, right, you talk about, and I think this will be very interesting for, for, for people in the corporate space, right, the difference between technocrats and visionaries. Can you tell us about the difference between, and the conflict there between technocrats and visionaries? Yeah, so it, it, technocracy is not democracy necessarily. Um, it, it, it can be democratic, uh, mm. but it may not be. Uh, so I, I think we should set the, the, the democracy question to one side for a moment. Um, you know, if, if you think about Ireland uh, in very crude terms, we had a, a visionary leading the country from the 1930s through the 1940s into the 50s. And that was De Valera, uh, who had a particular vision, a bucolic Ireland of, of uh, you know, the stereotype of, is of him saying, whether he actually said it or not, is a, a different matter of the comely maidens and the uh, sturdy contests of or the contests of sturdy boys and all, all that stuff. Mm. Uh, but it was a very rural bucolic vision. And Ireland by the 1950s had become a disaster zone. Um, and we know this because uh, so many people left. Mm. Uh, the immigration during the 50s was was absolutely catastrophic and the population had been falling continually in the 30 years since independence. T.K. Whitaker, you know, to again, to speak in broad terms, came along offering a technocratic vision, uh, one where 
we will improve things by about two to three percent a year on average. Uh, we will invest in education. We will change our tax codes. We will do things. And over a period of time, every 30 years, our standard of living will double. Um, it's not the most <laughs> kind of invigorating or bracing way uh, to sell things, but it, but it's a vision of steady, incremental compounding progress. And Singapore did much the same thing. It, it was a backwater in, in the 1950s. And uh, uh, at the same time, uh, they had a similar kind of technocratic turn. And um, I think there's a kink or a flaw in how humans see the world. Uh, and it's simple, uh, or it's simply expressed. We tend to disregard regular, slow, incremental progress. What we want to see is categorical change. Mm. It used to be X, now it's Y. <laughs> Not, well, we're 90% of the way towards Y. No, it's got to be one thing or the other. And if you give people problem-solving tasks uh, of varieties of different types, uh, uh, you know, they, they solve them on the computer, um, and you ask them to rate their progress, they will throw away any answers that haven't solved the problem completely. Uh, solving it 80% of the way is actually pretty good, you know, um, but what we tend to have is this uh, kink in the way we think where we let what will be the perfect solution mm. be the enemy of the good enough solution. Um, and uh, I, I draw the contrast between these two different approaches, uh, but I, I, I center it really around this idea that uh, humans really, again, I guess we've limited bandwidth, uh, we've limited capacity to process things through time, uh, all, all that kind of thing. We want to see that it's totally changed. And actually, um, the reality of economics is things like demography move slowly. You know, um, uh, you will get our changes in, in literacy it's not something you can wave a magic wand over. What you're hoping to see is a gradual and steady progress. You know, Ireland hit 100% literacy, I guess, 100 years ago. Uh, Afghanistan, I guess, might hit it in 50 years' time. Who knows? But, you know, when you, you plot the curves towards educational attainment, uh, for example, what you see is, is there's no magic wands here. Mm. Uh, just slow, steady, incremental improvement over time. Uh, and that I think we have a difficulty in seeing life in those terms because what we don't do is think about time series data. <laughs> you know, we don't don't go to our world and data and, and look what's happened over the last 50 years in terms of um uh child deaths on the road through traffic accidents. We we want to wave a wand and make the problem go away. But actually, it it you know, if you wanna if you wanna do something like reduce traffic injuries. You've got to have lots and lots of small changes in behavior and how we design our transport system in speed, in the design of cars so that they've got effective crumple zones in speed limits in, in uh, built up neighborhoods. There's 101 things to do. And then you will see over a period of time, a gradual decrease. Uh, you know, like obviously we can turn the, the, the tap off in terms of road traffic deaths really easily. Mm. by just uh, forbidding anybody to drive. But that, that's not going to be a, a solution that most people will reach for. Mm. Um, nations begin as conversations. Massive central theme in the book. How are how are countries' cognitive constructs? Yeah, so um, 
my starting point really uh when i when i was writing this book was uh he's he's kind of not terribly well known in ireland but the irish political scientist benedict uh, anderson Mm. Um, who spent his academic career mostly in the U.S., but worked on on issues to do with with Southeast Asia. Uh, he he was a persona non grata in Indonesia for thirty years because uh, he campaigned for uh, uh, a democracy in uh, in 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 Indonesia. Uh, anyway, that's a by the by. Uh, but his central question is this: If you think about a place like Indonesia, it's an archipelago consisting of hundreds of islands. Um, and uh, it extends over a considerable geographic area. How does something like that come together? And Anderson's claim is, I think, the central one in thinking about nationalism, that um, people have to engage in an active imagination together, defining what their nation is, where their nation stops, starts, where the borders are, all of those kinds of things. Um, and his claim is that he makes re some really interesting claims uh, that nationalism, for example, couldn't have existed before the written word. Uh, it couldn't have existed uh, before um, the widespread uh, advent of literacy or the gradual change in literacy. Um, and he also makes lots of claims to do with, with who is the certain source of knowledge around you. And that, that changed in Europe dramatically between, you know, the 12th century and the, and the 15th century. Suddenly, God was no longer at the center of the universe because of Copernicus. Suddenly, the Earth was a just a sphere <laughs> going around the sun. Uh, so we, we were decentered in in all sorts of ways. Um, but the the core point that uh, Anderson and others uh, who followed on from him make is that we have to imagine the community together. Mm. I don't know many people in Donegal, but uh, they will be Irish to me. They will be part of the Irish nation, and our definition of what the nation is changes over time. Um, of course, and necessarily, no no nation is is set in stone. And I, you know, there are lots of examples. Uh, depending on on uh, the uh, list you look at, there have been something like thirty new countries have come into being since nineteen ninety. Um, uh, and Czechia and Slovakia is a really good example. Where there was one, there is now two uh, two separate nations, and that that's in Europe. And uh, you know, we may see in our lifetime. Uh, this island uh, become a single nation. I don't know if that's going to happen or not, but it's certainly a conversation. And that's the point. Mm. <laughs> it's out there as a conversation. And the the, the kind of missing point uh, with Anderson, and, and this is not a, you know, a deep criticism of him, is that he, he doesn't talk about imagination and how we exercise it together as a collective psychological faculty that is allowed us because of how our brains are built mm. and our brains are built to work together collectively we talk all the time like you and i are, are talking at the moment we're able to imagine things together and you know if if the there are lots of examples but let's go back to a, a an old example when uh uh the united states hadn't yet come into being there were lots of conversations uh about what that nation should look like. And the Federalist Papers is a, is a really good example of, of how a conversation happened about what a nation should look like. Uh, no king, there will be a president. <laughs> that president will be voted for. Uh, 
and he will be limited in office. And it was a he, and only certain people could vote for him. But compared to what went before, <laughs> and this is a good example of incremental progress, that was absolutely dramatic, um, that uh, we can vote somebody in <laughs> and we can chuck them out. Um, and that's written down in the Federalist Papers in the 1770s. Um, you know, a, a really remarkable thing to do. We will not have hereditary rule anymore. Our new nation uh, will be set up. We will be self-governing. Uh, we will choose our own leaders, we will vote for our own leaders, and we will hoof these guys out. And uh, uh, lots of nations have taken their cue from that since then. But it began as a conversation, you know, Benjamin Franklin and his friends sitting down together, <laughs> having a discussion about what was wrong and how they will put it right, how they will get these guys out, how the, uh, the, uh, uh, the war, because they knew there would have to be a war, uh, would be prosecuted. And you can imagine exactly the same thing happening here 120 years ago when the IRB and others were uh, trying to have the same discussion. The declaration, our declaration of independence didn't fall out of the sky. That was eight or 10 people sat down around a table and negotiated a document and then said, we're going to promulgate this in the following way. That's how these things happen. And I, I think we kind of forget uh, when we look at history, the human element that uh, it has to be a vision and regularly visions fail. You know, mm -hmm. there, there are plenty of places where there are insurgent groups trying to say, well, actually, we want to create a new nation here. And the mass around them are saying, no, you may not do that. Um, you know, the, the Cornwall independence movement, for example, uh, or as we saw in, in Spain a couple of years ago, Catalonia looking uh, to be independent and that failed. Uh, and again, I'm not saying this is a good thing or a bad thing. I'm just saying that is the reality that uh, uh, conversations like this can succeed, um, but they may not. And of course, there's the shared memory when they went to those conversations, when the founding fathers and the IRB sat around the table and had those conversations, they had a collective shared memory of the experience of being subjugated, perhaps. Well, what they do is is something a bit more subtle than that, I think. Uh, they uh, What they have is a history that they can look back upon and they have to select components from that history. Hmm. Um for the simple reason that you can't go forward uh, as a with a revolutionary project which says this is the history of your land and you have a book this size <laughs> saying this is the history of your land what you have to do is is pull the elements from that and create a story that people uh, will buy into and are willing to sacrifice themselves on behalf of mm. and that's a rare political skill it's it's a difficult thing to do and and we know in the history of of this land uh, that there were many, many failed rebellions over a period of, of uh, hundreds of years. Um, uh, it might have been the case that the uh, uh, Franklin and, and his, his uh, as, as they would have been looked upon, co-conspirators might have failed and uh, the US might never have come into being. Um, and the, the world would be very different now had, had, had that vision uh, failed back in the, in the 1770s. Mm. Uh, you know, so uh, how these things happen, uh, I think we, we need to focus not so much on the great men, which is a, you know, a, a temptation, but focus on how people were thinking about what the elements that they wanted to tell as their story. And Anderson makes the point that uh, what people always do is, is call upon an antique past. They, they say this nation has always existed. Well, that's not true. 
<laughs> you know, our nations haven't always existed. Uh, there was a time when humans wandered the planet freely and uh, there were no nations, there were no borders. Uh, there was, you know, maybe uh, physical barriers in nature like mountains and rivers and seas. But uh, there were no borders on the on the that great journey we made out of Africa. Um, uh, Ireland as a concept didn't exist 10,000 years ago. Uh, it may not exist in 10,000 years time. I've, I've no idea. Um, but the point is that uh, the elements that are drawn out are necessarily selective and they're drawn out in such a way as, as to call upon a common deep past. And that thinking about that common deep past gives you legitimacy uh, in some way, uh, at least in your own eyes, if not in the eyes of others. Okay, that's terrific. Um, the book is Talking Heads, um, recently released, fantastic read. Oh, last question I wanted to ask you, get your perspective. The podcasting, the emergence of podcasting and that type of conversation, what's your perspective on podcasting? And I, I love podcasts, I have to say, and I subscribe to far too many of them. And uh, I listen to them over breakfast in the morning when I guess. Uh... <laughs> it's a phenomenon. It's, 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 it's like some kind of cultural phenomenon. Yeah, no, it's fantastic um, in all sorts of ways. I, I, I think... You know, what we're moving from is is uh, this kind of media environment, uh, which has been dominated by mm. a very few voices to one where there's a, there, there's a lot more uh, available to you. Now, um, I think we're in the early days of the podcast revolution there. I, I read somewhere that there are four million podcasts uh, in the world. I suspect that's an undercount. Uh, I, I suspect, you know, there's eight billion of us on the planet and there's probably quiet podcasts out there that don't make it onto Google podcasts or uh, whatever uh, the platform, Apple podcasts or Spotify or whatever mm. it happens to be. Um, but I, I, I think podcasting has done something really interesting, which is it has extended bandwidth for conversations that wouldn't have been possible. So you mm. and I have been talking for about an hour now. Mm. I wouldn't get that on the radio. Uh, you wouldn't, as a presenter, be allowed to do that on the radio. But but we see there's, there's an appetite for it. Uh, people want kind of in-depth kind of things like this. That's not to say that what the radio does is bad. I'm not, mm. not saying that for a moment. But um, it's, it's clearly the case that, you know, to use the economist's phrase, uh, there's a revealed preference <laughs> or there's a market uh, for a, a different type of consumption which wasn't there before. Professor Shane Mara, thank you so much. That was absolutely fascinating. Thank you, Connor.